0: And we're reading from both Genesis and Revelation. We'll start in Genesis. And why don't I pray before we we start reading. Father, we do ask that you would open our hearts and our minds uh, by the power of your Spirit, that as we read your word or have it read to us, that we would hear and respond with joy with what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Okay, we're going to go right over to the end in Revelation. Over, it's on page uh, 878 in the Church Bibles, starting at chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And now we're going to go to, just jump down to verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place.
1: It's hard to think of a quicker way to sound crazy than to talk about the last days, the end of all things, don't you think? If you're sort of in any doubt, try it at work tomorrow. Just bring it up at at lunch in the lunchroom and just see how that goes. Or in in a SWOT analysis, bring it up as a threat Talking about the end of the world, it's, it's guaranteed, almost, to make you sound strange. Which is not really fair, because surely thinking that this world is heading somewhere and will one day reach its destination, surely that's no more strange than believe, believing that this world is heading nowhere. I mean, I reckon it takes more faith to believe that this world has always been and will always be here, just carrying on for all eternity with no end. That's pretty strange when you think about it. Now, it could be that talking about the end of the world sounds crazy to us because there's been just so many embarrassing predictions about the end of the world that have been made. You know, just recently, the the Mayan calendar showing the end of the world in 2012. Obviously, it was just a sick practical joke that the Mayans played on us all that time ago because nothing came from it. Or Y2K, just a bit earlier than that. I remember I was speaking to an American from Texas in 1999 and they were going to be spending New Year's in a bunker with lots of tinned food waiting for the end. Looking back, it must be a little bit embarrassing for them. History's full of embarrassing predictions about the end, the end of the world that have proven false, probably more than most of us realise. Like Jehovah's Witnesses had to keep adjusting the date when things just didn't happen like they predicted, but also Christians in the past as well. So when it was 1000 AD, you can imagine, there were all sorts of predictions of the world ending, a thousand years since Christ had been born. And then when that didn't happen, they made predictions that it must be 1033, a thousand years after Jesus' death. Now, we could look at all these examples and and the many more that are out there and we could think maybe it's best not to talk about the end of the world or even to think about it at all. But that would be a huge mistake for us to make as Christians because it's hard to find a page of the New Testament that doesn't mention the end or at least have the end in the background. And on top of this, the end is very close to the heart of the Christian message, Jesus' message to the world. The Gospel is all about where this world is headed. So rather than saying having nothing to say about the end of the world, Jesus wants us to be people who are informed. And the fact that people make wrong predictions and have all sorts of mistaken ideas is actually just all the more reason for us to be talking about it. So that's what we're going to do over the next three weeks. We're going to look at where this world is headed and how it's going to get there. And instead of trying to closely read events that are happening in the world and figure out what's going on, instead of doing that, we're going to closely read Scripture and listen carefully to what God tells us that we can and can't know about where things are headed. Because don't you reckon it'd be pretty tempting to look around the world You know, you see North Korea or you see the mess of of Syria or ISIS or even US-Russian relations at the moment. Or you look around the world and you see more Christians persecuted now than ever before in the history of the world. We see whole continents abandoning Christianity. Someone sent me an article this week that said 10,000 people a week I stopped going to church in the UK. Surely, we've got to be in the last days. Isn't that what you conclude when you look around at the events in the world? Well, it's tempting to look at the events and try and decide those kind of things. But we need to look to Scripture. And the answer in Scripture is actually, yes, we are in the last days. But maybe not for the reasons that we might think. Look at Peter's first ever sermon in Acts 2. At the very beginning of the church. So Jesus has just gone back up to heaven, just poured out the Holy Spirit and people are speaking in other languages. Some people, if you remember, think that they're drunk. So Peter jumps up and look at what he says in verse 15. He says, These people are not drunk, as you suppose, It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Here it is. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. If we're going to listen carefully to what God has to say about the last days, then this is the first thing that we need to hear. And it's pretty important, isn't it? We're already in the last days. And we have been for nearly 2,000 years now. Peter says, he's in the last days and that means that so are we. And this isn't just Peter's view, it's Paul's view too. So in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, just one place, he says that on them, the people he's writing to, even back then, the culmination of the ages has come. The Apostle John, he can even say in 1 John 2.18, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Or the writer of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 1, says, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And even Jesus himself says in Mark 1, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. You see, it's absolutely crystal clear that from God's perspective, without a doubt, we live in the last days. And we were in the last days in the 1980s and in the quiet 1950s, not that I was there, were they quiet? Anyone? The point is, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. It's crystal clear in Scripture. But do you see what this means for us? Thinking about the last days is is not just an interesting academic exercise for us. The last days aren't just something that's in the future, they're now. Right now, we're in the last phase of this world before it reaches its goal. That's what it means. So it's absolutely critical for us to think about what that means for how we do life now, for how we live. And in the last week of this three-week series, that's what we're going to do. We're really going to think through what it means for how we live. This week, though, we're going to go somewhere that might surprise you. We're, We're going to go to the very beginning, Genesis 1, where we see that even in the beginning, we can see the end. And then having seen the end in the beginning, we're going to jump all the way to the end itself, to the last day, And we're going to see that there in the end, the beginning is not forgotten, it's not discarded or thrown away, it's still there. So today we're looking at these two bookends, the first day and the last day, because if we're to understand the end then we've got to see that it's part of a larger story and we need to see that the end has been shaping the story since the first day. In fact, The end has been shaping the story since before the beginning of time. So we jump back to the beginning. And the first thing that we see is that the garden is good. It's even very good when it's completed. But even still, it hasn't yet reached its goal. Look at Genesis 1.28. We read, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the seas and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God has just made Adam and Eve to be his image bearers. To rule over his creation as his servants. He's created a garden for them and and placed them in it and provided everything they need. As you read it, it sounds idyllic. It's paradise. And yet, even though it's very good, it's not perfect. Not because there's anything wrong with it, but because it's not complete. There's there's still a job to be done. Humanity, we just read, is to fill the earth and to subdue it and to rule over it. Have you noticed in um, advertising that there's often a theme of, of returning to the Garden of Eden? The picture that you create to sell your product is the idea of getting back to an unspoilt garden paradise. For some reason, kids standing outside the bathroom fighting while you're trying to peacefully shampoo your hair just doesn't sell the shampoo product. But the idyllic waterfall, where there's no leeches and the water doesn't even look cold, that does. Or the car, which which doesn't just transport you through boring tra- traffic in In my boring life to my boring work, if I buy the right car, I can be transported back to the idyllic garden paradise, at least if I get an all-wheel drive option. It's a common theme in advertising, you see it all the time. It's a common theme in books and movies, this longing to get back to the garden. But it's funny, because as amazing as the garden is in the Bible, it's not presented as the goal even in the garden, even before humanity spoils creation, even still, God has got a higher end, a higher goal in mind. We only get glimpses of it here in Genesis. We've got to go to other places to really see it, but and we will do that in a minute. But even what we do see here is enough to know that God's ultimate goal for his creation wasn't for two people To retreat from the world into a pristine garden paradise, instead his goal has got something to do with a great number of people filling the earth, not simply maintaining the earth but subduing it and then ruling over it, which isn't the idea of exploitation, it's the idea of caring and expanding the garden across the face of the earth. And God's place in this plan isn't to be distant from humanity, he doesn't sort of set them going and then leave them to it. It's the complete opposite, we read. His plan is to be intimately involved, engaged at every step. He, he breathes life into them. He communicates with them. He blesses them. He provides for them, instructs them. And we read, he even walks with them. There's a hint of the ultimate goal in the final day of creation, which we see in Genesis 2 verse 3. We read there, then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he'd done. Now it's not like God needed to take a break because he was tired. That's not what's going on here. And being God, he never rests from sustaining creation. That's that's a work that God always does. Something else is going on here. This is is a picture of what creation is all about. Its purpose is to be a sacred, holy place where God could dwell at rest with humanity. Almost as if the goal of this world was to be God's sanctuary, His temple, where people and God could dwell together. Even as God worked sustaining the world and even as humanity worked under his rule the goal was a people at rest dwelling with their God. Now most of us here today know what happens next, Adam and Eve reject the goal that God has for us and they decide on a different goal, it's almost as if they desecrate God's sanctuary, they choose to set up their own image in his place, instead of being his image. Which is actually incredibly offensive. It's an incredibly offensive personal rejection of God. Because think about what they're saying. They're saying to God, we don't want you to dwell with us in this world that you've made. The story takes such an awful turn so quickly in the Bible. It's so dramatic and so devastating that we could be forgiven for thinking that the rest of the story of the Bible is just about getting back to the Garden. The rest of the story, it's all about God undoing our rebellion to recreate the beginning. But that would be to miss something. God doesn't want to take us back to the beginning, back to the Garden of Eden. God has always had a greater goal in mind. And despite our rejection. Even through our rejection, God has pledged Himself to be the God who will dwell with His people. Today, we're going to skip over how God achieves this and uh, how He achieves this goal for His world. We'll see that next week. For now, we're going to jump to the other bookend, to that last day where we see this end. But just before we do that, though, we need to keep in mind that peering both into the Garden of Eden... And trying to peer into the end that's to come is like trying to see through the eyes of a goldfish. Apparently, goldfish can see light end in ultraviolet as well. Imagine being able to see ultraviolet. Now, I'm a little bit colorblind, so it's hard enough for me just imagining to see red. But for you, imagine that you could, could actually see colours that no one else could see. A spectrum that, that's just beyond the normal range. How would, you just, how would you go describing those colours to non-goldfish-eyed people? It sort of blows your mind trying to do it. You just, we just can't. It's, it's near impossible, don't you think? Well, that's what we face when we try to glimpse the Garden of Eden or when we try to glimpse the end. It's a reality that we just can't know, that's too wonderful so far beyond our experience because it's untainted by sin that we just can't fully appreciate it and communicate it. But John gets a glimpse and he has to communicate it to us in pictures and language that we can see. Have a look with me at this picture in Revelation 21, verse 1. This is what John writes about the end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. A new heaven and a new earth here doesn't necessarily mean that, that the material of this world is going to be just completely destroyed and remade. It means, and if you read a bit down, you see this, it means the old order of things has passed away. Creation under God's curse has passed away a new beginning has come. And then in verse 2, we see John tell us what the end looks like. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The end is not a garden, the end is a city, which, I've got to admit, used to disappoint me when I was growing up. I didn't grow up in a city and and the only cities that I'd visited growing up was Wollongong and Sydney, so you can understand why I was so disappointed. But this city that we read about here is magnificent. So costly. So intricate that it almost sounds over the top. And so large that our minds just boggle. If you take the dimensions of this city literally... It could easily stretch from Adelaide to Melbourne to Brisbane to Alice Springs. Actually, it's, it's bigger than that. It, it's 2,200 kilometres squared, cubed, in fact. It's as high as it is wide. The end is a city, but the beginning is still there in this picture. Look at 22 verse 1, which was read before. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. This is just like the Garden of Eden, if you remember. And there's more. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Again. Just like Eden. See, the end is not just a city. It's a garden city. And This is where we need to remember that we don't have goldfish eyes. This is all picture language. And everything, and I mean absolutely everything in this picture, is all about God dwelling with His people. All of it. Skim through it with me and let me show you. Back in 21 verse 3, We hear a voice, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And in case we miss it, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 7. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. All of it is about God dwelling with his people. Chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. The end is all about God dwelling with his people. The Garden City is a sanctuary where humanity and God can live together at rest where we'll see God face to face, in verse 4 there, where we will happily rule with God as his servants and his children. Even the dimensions of the city are a picture that points to this. See, it's ridiculously large to accommodate all of God's people. And the use of 12, which we didn't read just before, but you can read later, 12 gates, 12,000 stadia, the 12 precious gems, these all point to the complete picture of God. All God's people are there, just like there were 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles. And even the fact that the city is a cube is not an accident. The most holy place in the temple, did you know, was a cube. This city is God's sanctuary. There's no need for a temple because the whole thing is God's temple. And finally, did did you notice what the city even is? Back in 21 verse 9, we read, the city is the wife, the bride of the Lamb, which is the Bible's way of saying the city itself is actually the people of God. We are the city. The end of all creation, the goal of this world is fellowship with God. God dwelling with His people forever in a world that can't be tainted, can't be desecrated, can't be lost. From the beginning, this world was meant to be a sanctuary for God where He'd dwell with His people and God won't give up on that end. Well, we've seen the beginning and the end, the first day and the last day, the two bookends... What we haven't seen is how God gets things from the beginning to the end. That's next week and what we'll be looking at. But looking at these two bookends, we can already say a couple of really important things about the last days. Like we can say that life now is not meaningless. God has a purpose for this world that he invites each one of us to be a part of. Not to try to get back to the garden. Our goal, our purpose is to dwell with God collectively, but individually as well. That's our purpose in life. Another implication of what's of um of all of, of this end is that what's coming is inevitable. Nothing can stop this. No matter what problems or challenges we may find in the world, again collectively, but also individually. Nothing can stop this. God's plan is going to happen. God is faithful and he won't give up on his creation. He's absolutely committed. He could have scrapped it all and started again and he would have been entirely within his rights to do that. It would have been appropriate except that he committed himself before the beginning to be God with us, dwelling with us, whatever it took. And he knew exactly what it would take. He knew exactly what it would cost, but he considered it worth it. The end is not a picture that God's aiming towards, hoping that he might one day achieve. This has always been the plan. This is the plan that that he's unfolding even now and nothing can stop this city from descending over the face of this earth. In fact, as we're going to see next week, in God's eye... Everything that's needed to make this happen has already been done. We're just waiting to inherit it and we're in the very last days before we see it revealed. This brings us to the third implication. We have a choice. You have a choice, I have a choice. It's the same choice that Adam and Eve had. Just like Adam and Eve, we can decide whether we want to share God's goal for this world or whether we'd prefer to keep fighting him, asserting ourselves and our own goal. See, don't be fooled. We'll either dwell with God forever, or we'll be shut out from this picture forever. We see that here in Revelation 22. Jesus himself says, blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. We have a choice. We either ignore God's plan or we embrace it. And we see what embracing it looks like in verse 17. Let the one who is thirsty come, And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life, of eternal life. See, in the end, there's only one difference between those who are inside the city and those who are outside. They're not better people, those who are on the inside, than those who are on the outside. Both need to be, equally need to be washed. Both equally need the free gift. In the end, the difference between those who are inside and those who are outside is that those who are inside thirst. Those who are inside have a thirst for what Jesus offers that drives them to him. The fourth implication is that we haven't yet arrived at this picture. Not yet do we experience this picture completely in our day-to-day lives. If you find life dissatisfying, there's a reason. If you find the struggle against sin demoralizing, there's a reason. If you find that at times, many times even, you just don't feel close to God, there's a reason. We're not at home, not yet, but we will be soon. And the fifth and final implication that I'm going to mention today is that we haven't yet arrived, but already we can start to live out who we are. Right now we're not at home but we are citizens of this city and we can live that now. We can live as citizens of this city. Yes, we'll do it imperfectly until Jesus returns or we die and go to be with him. But nonetheless, right now we can live as citizens of what's coming in our day-to-day lives. Next week we see how God is going to bring this end about what it means to be in the last days. And then in the final week, we're really going to think through what it looks like for us now to live in the final days, in the last days. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, your commitment to your creation is astounding. Your love for us, that you would want to dwell with us, your creatures, and that even despite our rejection of you and your goal for this world, your desire to be with us. That nonetheless, in Jesus, you have made it possible for us to be a part of this city, this guarded city that will know no end, where we will be able to dwell with you face to face. Lord, we lack the vision to be able to see this for the wonder that it is. Lord, give us a glimpse. Help us to feel just how amazing it is. Lord, help us to thirst for this and to come to Jesus and know it as our reality, not because we deserve it, but because you have made a way for this to be possible. Lord, we long for this end to come. And with John and with all believers and with the Holy Spirit, we cry out, come Lord Jesus, return, bring this reality over the face of this earth. We pray in his name. Amen.